Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> All right. It has been a while for us. Now for our dear listeners, of course, um, it's probably been a while too, but it's been about, oh, a month, uh, I would think, since hopefully the last time we posted something by the time this goes out. But it's been a while since we've actually recorded because that Errol Flynn trilogy. Boy, it took it out of us. It really did. It just beat all the energy out of us. It was, that was, that was monumental. So now we're going to do one that is the first time we've done a live person that we're going to talk about. And actually, it didn't turn out exactly like we expected it to. No, it did not. We're going to talk about Elaine May, who is a brilliant, talented, fantastic artist in many ways, but we wanted to really focus on her as a director, her work, her oeuvre of of work consists of five films, and we were expecting that this would be like woman power, right? This would be like, oh my gosh, we're going to really highlight this amazing mm-hmm. director that who did, hasn't gotten her due, perhaps, as because she's a woman. Well, folks. <laughs> Turned out she's not that great of a director. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> thought it was going to be good because she has directed one fantastic movie. That she's we also, adore. Right. And she's participated in some really classic stuff, too, like writing Yeah, writing, Um, and and her acting is good, and she was a great... Well, we'll go back to the short little bio of her. But just to let you know, this is not what we expected, but we're forging on ahead because it it is worthy of discussion, I think, her her directing career. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, instead of every time being like, bow, it's amazing, wow, look at this, whoa, impressive. Bow, 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 bow. You know, sometimes, uh, and I mean, the Errol Flynn was a little like this too, where we were like, well, we didn't expect to be quite so disappointed in his personality and <laughs> life. Yeah, but it was very interesting. It was very interesting. It was very interesting, and his, his star as an actor in the few really good films he did holds up today. So there was that to be excited about. But yeah, okay, so... So we'll start off just by a little quick biography of Lane May, in case you haven't heard of her. Born in 1932, her uh, parents were both in showbiz. Her dad was a director and her mother's an actor. And so from the moment she was born, she was steeped in, you know, the art of the theater and in, you know, show business and all of that, that kind of thing. And she ended up really having trouble in school. She didn't like school. She hated it very, very much. She dropped out really early. She was, I think, 15 or something. She dropped out. She's an iconoclast. She's always from the very beginning. She's just been someone who not only speaks her own mind, has her own way. It sounds like she is also a little bit fiery and obstreperous in her approach to the world and to life. And so it can make her somewhat problematic along with the fact that she's brilliant. That's kind of what I got out of a lot of things I read about her. It's almost like she would often be too much for people. And she met the actor Richard Burton and he was like, oh, she was the most, you know, beautiful, brilliant, intelligent woman I ever met, and I hope never to see her again. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So she was a really difficult person, it sounds like. Uh, she ended up going to Chicago, which had a big comedy scene there, and I think it still does. It, it's a hub of new uh, comics coming up, but developing their craft, being inspired by each other, and becoming very successful. And it was in Chicago she met her her partner, her comic partner, Mike Nichols. Now, my understanding is is that they were also a couple-couple hmm. in terms of having an actual relationship, and he was married when they met, so... You know, they don't talk a lot about that. They were groundbreaking. Uh, Nichols and May 
which is what they called themselves, which I think is a little take on Nuts in May, which is a hmm. like a little phrase, a little song in English song. It's kind of traditional. And it's very funny. So Nichols and May, they were just a duo. They met in, um, they were in a comedy theater and they were asked to leave because they were too good. <laughs> And they were getting everything out of whack and out of balance because they were so much better than everybody else. It just, <laughs> they, they, so they went off on their own and began performing and became hugely successful. And, and their style was, it was improvisation, the two of them. What they would do is they would sketch out an idea like, okay, we're going to do a mother and son. And this is the basic outline. And then they would just go on stage in front of everyone and improvise. And if you go on YouTube, and we'll put some links in the show notes, you'll be able to see some of these great comics skits that they did as they were performing them and I think they hold up I really like that the one about the adult son calling his mother I thought that was hilarious and there's another one that they did where she is the representative for an undertakers and the uh, man is calling up to bury his parent one of his parents and he's trying to buy a casket and buy a funeral and all that it was very very funny their style is very from the couple that we've watched um, is very much Elaine Mayer like takes the lead yeah, and she certainly appears to, anyway. Uh, my understanding is is that she did, she took the lead in terms of pushing the boundaries, finding new ideas, bringing them in. But Mike Nichols, apparently, as the straight man who seems pretty passive, mm-hmm. actually had a lot to do with sort of shaping it so that it would go on a process and get to an end point which is not what she would do. She was just kind of all process, and if we're up to her, it probably just petered out into nothing. And so he was the basically kind of the director of the, the, the skits in a way, okay. um, which I'm sure that all took place in ways that we couldn't see because it certainly appears like he's the passive straight man. Yeah, she's very chatty and full of colorful language and stuff like that. And she comes up with the, the jokes, I mean, yeah. and if they're improvising, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But that really signals their strengths and where they were going to go in life. So if you haven't ever heard of Mike Nichols, you need to go and look him up because he's one of the greatest theatrical and film directors of the 20th century Mm -hmm. and early 21st century. He just died recently and he, by happenstance, locked into being a director and clearly he was made for it. Mm -hmm. So that really makes sense that he would have been more interested in shaping how their comedy went forward. And then she was just more interested in process, in the ideas, in the humor, in, you know, bringing themes in and all this kind of stuff. And of course, she her strength is in the writing. And she became a, a playwright and a screenwriter, very funny. And she did do some acting. And she's really a terrible director. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. She was... Um, noticeably bad and I can have an eye for certain things but I'm not one of those director geeks who you know who really notices shots and things like that I notice really great artistry I notice shit but the stuff in between I, I don't tend to notice oh that was you know that was a better action scene or something like that I often don't unless it's really noticeable so I notice that she's a bad director is what I'm yeah. getting at <laughs> I know, I'm so disappointed. I'm like, no, you need to be great in everything. So basically, they were together about four years, and then they uh, essentially broke up, if you will. They had to break up personally and professionally. I think it had to be an all-or-nothing kind of deal. And essentially, the, uh, the way Mike Nichols tells it is they had gotten very phenomenally successful, nothing that they ever expected. Mm. They just shot to the top of the Broadway scene and they were doing shows and they were so successful. And in order to sustain that kind of trajectory and keep a decent quality, really, 
you had to kind of start to standardize things. Mm -hmm. If you're doing two shows a day, you can't just do pure improv every time, or you're not going to keep up the quality. So it just, Elaine just, I guess it took a toll on her is what he said. She just couldn't stand it. She couldn't be that way. It was crushing her creativity. And so they just couldn't go forward with it anymore. So then he veered off into being a director. And the very first film he directed, anyway, I think he directed something on Broadway, but the first film he directed was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm. Did you ever seen that? We haven't seen it yet, no. Uh, it really is a great movie. It's a great mm. adaptation of the play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The film version stars Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. We'll have to talk about it sometime because it is pretty fantastic. And George Siegel and Sandy Dennis. So it's four people. He really did... I think a really great job taking a play and it still kind of felt like a play because it was still enclosed in this area but he put enough movement into it that you didn't feel it was too stagey so I, I mean I was very impressed when he talked about how ill-prepared he was and he came in and he really did it he really had the talent for it and then May went off on her trajectory and began doing a lot of writing and so forth and then that brings us into her time as a director mm. so we're ready to start that so she did four five films right yeah she did five. First one was our fave right a new leaf then right after that she did the heartbreak kid then mikey and nikki and then it was quite a long time because she did these in the 70s that she did ishtar which is very famous for often people say it's the worst movie ever made which it is not but that was really the end of her directing career and i think yeah. really for the best yeah and then very recently, she just did for American Masters, she did an interview with Mike Nichols. So it's just Mike Nichols sitting there talking, and the no camera moves directing. every now and then. Yeah. And it's amazing, because even that is bad directing. Because <laughs> I've seen other ones, even just with Mike Nichols. Yeah. And they're so much better. She just really doesn't have the camera eye. And that's just not her talent. But she was a great writer she um worked on tootsie yeah uncredited but yeah, yeah she worked on tootsie she worked on i guess she worked on reds for warren Beatty. she worked on heaven can wait uh the bird cage where she worked with mike nichols again because he directed it right and i think that's funny oh yeah yeah that's yeah. a great movie yeah it's not always totally t with the time politically correct but it's still funny Primary Colors, I think. No, that he directed that. I think maybe she did some writing on that movie. You can go look it up online. She she was the content generator and not a formulator. Right, right. I agree. That's a really great way to say it. I agree with that totally. Mm. Because she needed somebody to say no, or we need to cut that out, or we need to take this and now we need to go here. Maybe not tell her, but to take it there to a point because she would just go off. I mean, she was just so into her process. So I'll digress here because I'm going to hit Mikey and Nikki. I was actually going to go through the movies chronologically, which we will go back to and do that for clarity's sake, but just want to illustrate her process orientation. So in Mikey and Nikki, the two leads are John Cassavetes. Talk about process and method acting. He was just so known to be in that group and he's quite famous for it. And then the other person is Peter Falk. And if anyone knows, remembers the show Columbo, Peter Falk was the titular lead in that and he played Columbo. But he actually was a method actor and he had a lot of theater experience in, in New York and so forth. So these two guys are, are playing a couple of gangsters and acting away. And Elaine May just went way over budget, way over time because she was just so into the process. And so one time the actors left the scene and they went off what lunch or something, I don't know. And the camera was still running. And so some 
somebody who worked on the crew was trying to take care of business and he said cut and turn off the camera and she got mad at him because he w- it wasn't his place to yell cut she was the director and he says but the actors left the the scene and she said but they might come back <laughs> <laughs> so silly <laughs> just you're just gonna leave running in case they decided to walk through the the set you know just get some more realistic uh gritty takes i don't know interesting i think that is hilarious and it's it really is uh taking that idea of being in the moment and being in process to absurd levels yeah and expensive levels too and, and unrealistic levels where that film is it costs way more than the budget and you don't see any of it on screen no it looks like it was shot on a shoestring budget that's lay may and that's the kind of thing that over and over and over just kneecapped her directing ability yeah Yeah. that's one of the things i think the other thing is she doesn't really have an eye and she isn't trained um so let's go back to her first film which was a new leaf Mm -hmm. which was in 1971 she wrote the script a new leaf and they wanted to do it and they didn't, they didn't want to give her approval for the parts and stuff. So she says, okay, fine, I'll do it myself. Which is weird that they wouldn't let her have approval over the director or the actor, but then they let her direct it. And she herself said that was very strange. And she okay. had, had no training at all in directing, so she knew nothing. And she didn't know anything about sets. So she goes on the set, and it's amazing that they did anything at all. The, the film actually doesn't look too bad. It's not elegant at all or anything but it's workmanlike it works but the reason is and she went on there and even though this was a very misogynist time in a misogynist business the studio heads were giving her a hard time and really kind of trying to bully her and so forth and the men because it was all men of her crew decided that they were going to back her up that they didn't want to see this happen so they said don't worry we'll do it so really, probably what happened is the crew pretty much... Collectively directed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so that's probably why it worked okay, because there were some people who were real professionals. And even if they weren't necessarily artists, they knew what they were doing. And so they, they, they did create a serviceable product. Yeah. And the script is fantastic. And she got very, very lucky in that she had wanted kind of a suave, good-looking guy to play the lead because he was a playboy. Mm -hmm. And the actor, Walter Matthau, who is not suave and not (laughs) good-looking, decided he wanted to play it. And he really wanted, he fought for that that role. Hmm. And he ended up getting it. Brilliant luck. Because that guy's humor, his ability, his timing... The way he creates intonations is so funny. Mm-hmm. Don't you agree? Isn't oh, yeah. Had you ever heard of Walter Matthau before? His name awesome. sounds familiar. I don't know if I've seen anything that he's been in before. He but... was in The Odd Couple, if you've ever seen that film. It's the, the film, not the TV show. He was in that. He played the Oscar, the slob part. Yeah, no, he's incredible. He's totally... Just the perfect, he work, He walks so many fine lines in that role because mm-hmm. it's not really a sympathetic role. He plays a rich, like, trust fund, grown, grown-ass grown man who acts like a child. And yet, and you know, he also comes in, not, not to spoil anything, I think it's okay to talk about the plot. Yeah. He comes in deciding that he's going to get married and murder his wife for her money, and so... Uh, and yet somehow, and I think you said maybe Elaine wrote this script with the intention of okay, trying... Okay, now I guess we should say we are going to spoil the end. Let's let's roll back and, and, and set this up for you. Okay, there are the four movies. The only one we highly recommend 
is a new leaf. Right. So go watch a new leaf. And then come back. And then come back. Because it's great. It's so good. It's so good. You will be happy you watched it, I'm sure. And then come back yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about it. So unless you just want to listen to it'll it and you don't good. care. It'll, it'll be good. It'll be good either, either way. Yeah. I, I like it now as much, if not more, than when I first saw it. Because the plot really doesn't have any impact on your enjoyment. There's no real mystery to it. Okay, so go ahead. Sorry. Okay, so I think maybe she she wrote this script with the intention of, can I get you to sympathize with this unsympathetic character? And I don't think we would have if it was a suave guy, because he would have been too much of an asshole. It, it's quite, quite possible. And also, in her original script, what she wanted to do was actually have him kill his wife and the lawyer, kill two people, and see if she could do that and have us still sympathize with him. So again, Elaine May going into her head, coming up with cool, interesting ideas that she would like to explore versus going, I'm making a movie for people to watch. If I want them to watch it, I have to kind of... Yeah, what's the spirit of the film and how should I best promote that? Right, exactly. She's not... She is just not going there. So she had a big fight with the studio because that... And she actually filmed some of the... Uh, the wife being killed mm. in a comic manner, um, and you'll see. And if you watch when you watch the film, you'll see bits where he's imagining killing her. Those were actually shot to be death scenes mm. in the film. So I thought that that was uh, very interesting. It is intriguing. Yeah, and so basically the studio stepped in at that point. Um, she didn't have final cut, so they were able to take it away from her, and they wanted a happy ending because it was it was a very fun, sweet film. And maybe she did have Final Cut, actually. We'll get back to that. Uh, But anyway, it was a very fun, sweet film. Tender. I loved it. I mean, I think it's just... It's got such a, like, a a lovely spirit, even though it's... Mm -hmm. Ironic and edgy and a little sarcastic, even. Yet, there's a sweetness at the core of it. Mm -hmm. So her acerbic uh, wit really does offset the the sweetness, so it doesn't Mm -hmm. get too treacly. But you'll see at the end of the film when the wife doesn't die and she had to shoot this scene where she's saved and she hated it. Even that she was playing the part. She hated it. So what she does is, and it makes it more funny actually, is she's mad. So she films them hand in hand walking into the sunset with birds tweeting. Yeah. Like it is so, and this sweet music playing, and it is so funny because it is so sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> so that was her comment on on what she had to do for the end of the, the film. Interesting. That was that was what was going on those the, hmm. the the politics, and so she ended up suing the studio because she was saying I think she might have had Final Cut or something, but they would not release it. So they released the, the film, and. With the better ending, it got much better reviews, much better uh, marks from the test audiences. So she sues them. They go into court. The judge watches the film. Yeah. And he goes, it's such a nice film. (laughs) Why do you want to mess it up? (laughs) So she she had a lawsuit going for like, I think it said like 10 or 12 years. Wow. Really? Just over her rights to the ending that yeah, she wanted. Yeah, she was she was so mad, and that's Elaine May. I think that's <laughs> I think that's her, which probably made it very difficult to be around her sometimes, especially working. I mean, personally, I don't know what she was like, but it must have been difficult to work with someone like that, or around someone like that, or for someone like that. Yeah, it's so interesting. Her character in A New Leaf is so timid and like <laughs> and like true. 
hapless and everything. I'm so used to, in terms of seeing her, her being that character. And so it's like hard for me to think about her being really bossy or commanding or whatever. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because she's just so, so sweet. But in a way, that character, she's like always, like her glasses are always falling off her face and she's dropping things and she just is, she is hapless. But in a certain way, at the end, she gets exactly what she wants. Oh, totally. So there's this underlying will yeah. that that character has that even though she's totally impractical, it's almost like whatever she has, she can use to create the outcome she wants. Yeah, that's the second question. Is like you can take it at face value and it's a really sweet movie, but you could look at it like, is she really manipulative? Like, well, not manipulative, but 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 she's just she's just determined to. Mm-hmm you know, shape her, her reality. I don't know. I don't think that, I don't, I bristle a little manipulative because I think that that's very negative. It's a strong word, but I would almost feel like Elaine May might have like wanted to like explore that a little bit. No, maybe she would (laughs) because she is that kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. She, 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 she didn't seem to have any uh, compunction about going wherever she wanted to. Social mores or norms or whatever wasn't, weren't going to shut her down. So could be. Is there any, um, any part of the film in particular you want to, uh, address because we do love this film yeah it it almost really reminds me of um harold and maude in a certain way mm-hmm. i kind of think of them and like they have similar spirit in terms of the almost magical realism elements mm. like i feel like about this this one's it doesn't really have the magical part but it definitely has the absurd part of it that mm. gives it the same feel and then of especially course, the wedding don't you think? yeah totally I mean, the obvious parallel is the main character, who's this wealthy, ennui-riddled, existential kind of. Except he, except Malter Mathau is middle-aged, and um, the Harold, right. and played by as played by Bud Court, is teenager. Right, and Harold's Early too 20s. deep, and Malter uh, Mathau's <laughs> too shallow. But, <laughs> and they kind of like meet in the middle by their character growth at the end of each movie, respectively. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's um, good, good, good point. And it is made around the same time as Harold and Maude, so it has that whole. The look, the yeah. zeitgeist, the clothes, the car, you know, all that kind of deal. Harold has the sports car and, oh, God, what is his name? Gra- Henry Graham. And Henry right. has a sports car. I mean, right. so there's that same kind of trappings of wealth. I, I actually only noticed watching, rewatching it the second time around, but their names, the two two leads, Elaine May and Math Hour, yeah. are Henry and Henrietta. Yeah. Which I, thought, <laughs> I don't know. I enjoyed that. I know. It is, it's funny. And, again, that's her kind of taking the sweet but meaning it in kind of a kind of an arch way and especially you know because they're always calling each other by their name right they say each other's names so much which is kind of one it's like the dialogue is really good and mm-hmm. it's really funny and it's very colorful and sort of and it's fresh. rhythmic yeah and using those names the henry and henrietta you, there's almost there's a, there's a rhythm when they use it, it it kind of completes the rhythm of the sentence in a mm-hmm. very satisfying way and the two characters so so he marries her for her money and he's planning to kill her for most of it and she's just like a dork yeah. <laughs> and uh, and she teaches high uh, college or high, I guess yeah. college. She teaches college despite she teaches being this like, crazy rich heiress. Yeah, uh, and so she doesn't really express her feelings aside from being like, "Oh, Henry." And he obviously is not supposed to have any feelings right. um, until they grow. And so the way that they call each other by their names is like one one way that you can kind of see that relationship develop without him knowing yeah, that yeah. he's like falling in love with her. Just like how, how often he says her name. I think right. I felt like that was like really And what's interesting good. is is the way the love works. It's a, satire isn't quite the right word, nor is pastiche, but it's a gloss on romantic love 
that is anti-romantic. Mm-hmm. Because when it comes to the end, I don't think of them as being in love. They're just like They're bonded. Suited. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they end up being bonded. But I don't see that romantic passion. I don't, because I mean, they're not bringing that in. It's simply that they've both settled into their correct places in relation to each other. So it's a very interesting thing because it is anti-romantic, but it's sweet. Mm-hmm. It's And I think maybe that is very clever in that that kind of sweet resignation, if you will, certainly on his part, yeah. resignation, can end up being far more long-lasting and ultimately satisfying than this... A Romeo and Juliet style. Yeah, like, the romantic yeah. kind of thing, exactly. Um, and so that's a very... And I think maybe for me, I'm just realizing, I think that that's where it clicks in to being so satisfying that I have seen this film, okay, maybe only five or six times. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll probably, for the rest of my life, I'll probably watch it at least once a year. Maybe even, tw- I could even watch it twice a year. I could probably watch it again tonight and, and enjoy it, you know. Yeah. Um, I could, I can keep watching it and get a lot out of it because there is that, there's a, it's like the good meal that you get. Okay, I could eat chicken every day. I love it. Mm-hmm. And because I, I feel satisfaction. At, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's uh, digestible too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it is. easy on the system. Yeah. Like, uh, no, but I think you're exactly right when you say, when you describe, like, what kind of love it is and why it works. Because mm-hmm. I think, too, the, like, the the motivations wouldn't work any other way. Like, if he suddenly fell passionately yeah. in love with her, then he... You wouldn't believe it because she's not sexy. True. And you wouldn't believe that he was planning to murder her up until the last minute. Right, right, you know? right. Um, it, and that it could have snuck up on him like that or something. Right, right. Good, um, good point. Uh, yeah, because it... it it's the kind, like I was talking, the, the clunking in. Part of that is that he finds his own capability by mm-hmm. taking care of her incapability. Because before that, he has a butler who, like, wipes his hands and and picks out his clothes and holds his coat and brushes him off and brings him his drink. I mean, every who, who basically, like, he's the king or something, the way he takes care of all of his little bodily needs. But then as soon as he meets Henrietta, because she's so hapless, he's wiping her hands, holding her coat, brushing off her clothes, cutting tags off her clothes. And all of a sudden, you notice the butler drops out in terms of his role as a body servant. Mm -hmm. And he's no longer doing those things for him. And all of a sudden, this guy who is going into his personal banker and going, pay this check. And they're going, you don't have any money, but this check must be paid. How can I say this? You don't have any money. And they have this whole scene about him. Well, what you learn later is that that is his willful attitude of not wanting to deal with money. But he gets into her world and all of her servants are stealing her money. He gets the books out. He goes over the books. He handles the situation. He gets rid of the servants. He he, uh, balances her books. He gets things taken care of financially. Mm -hmm. And he becomes this very, very capable individual in all these areas that in the beginning of the film he showed himself to be completely incompetent and I think that that is where it comes in is not so much the personal love between them but that her the way she is allows him to flourish and then that creates the bond because he wasn't interested in he didn't even seem interested in sex he didn't have any girlfriends he didn't want anything to do with women they touch his things yeah (laughs) They move his things. Right. <laughs> he didn't want anything to do with that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense for him to become... He would be a different character if he suddenly had this 
big passion all of a sudden. There's a really great scene in the middle, which I think was both of our favorites. Yes. Oh, I know. Sure. I almost feel like it's kind of the that high point or like the crux of the movie or like the point of the movie. Yes. It's it's really. I agree. That's yeah. the point the movie pivots on in terms of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And because it's also the funniest scene. It is, and because it didn't, he didn't need to do what he did actually. Mm-hmm. And yes, I totally agree. You want to? Do you want to say what it is? Sure. Um, so they they're on their honeymoon. After having been married um, one night, and he's, you know, probably going to plotting to kill her on her yeah. honeymoon. And this is their first night, too. Right. The first night together. And so they're they're sitting down to dinner or some something, and she comes out in her nightgown, but she can't figure out how to put it on. Well, she's got a, a Grecian, what they call the Grecian nightgown, which you find out later in the scene, which is basically over one shoulder, and then the head and the other arm in another hole. But she's got it, like, both her arms through a hole, and she's got her head through... Yeah, she's yeah. got got it totally, totally screwed up, and she and you can see because she's all like squashed up in it. She looks really weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> the perfect like meeting of like physical humor and like a perfect like almost wordless demonstration of what the movie's about <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, like without take blinking twice, like just goes up and he's trying to help her like with her put her head through and yeah. fix the nightgown and there's nothing sexy about it you know there's no like oh wow she's actually really beautiful or anything nothing and she's wearing her glasses and they yeah. keep slipping off and he's pulling the nightgown over her head and it's got two layers so he's got one layer over her head and he's got the other layer and he goes no 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 Henrietta raise your arm no Henrietta the other arm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no through here now no Henrietta you've got your head through the armhole <laughs> He's doing this whole thing, and he finally gets her pretty much straightened out. And what what, what I read later is that what yeah. she had done in order to get, and it looks like it's imp- improvised, reaction, yeah. doesn't it? It looks like it's pretty much improvised. She sewed herself into the nightgown in the wrong way yeah. so that he's trying to do this, and it's impossible because <laughs> she's sewn herself into the, ga- into That's the nightgown. Amazing. Isn't that funny? And I think it's even better. It really shows how into his character he was because yes. one of the like best the, the good traits that come out that you're like, oh, this person is actually redeemable and stuff, is that he has this, like, really great, like, apparently this deep reservoir of patience. Yeah. And so him as the actor struggling with this nightgown and, like, he never raises his voice. Frustrated, yeah. you, know? he, you can get a little bit, he, gets, yeah. he can get a little bit like, no, Henrietta. That's as much as yeah. he gets. He is. He, he actually is totally patient, but it's almost like a resigned patience, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, a um, what is it? A, the ennui kind of patience, like where it's dog, just kind of yeah. like, oh, <laughs> all right, we're doing this again. Yeah, you know, and just it's very funny though, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and it's interesting because her character is less developed in a way. It's almost mm-hmm. like she comes into it full fledged, and she doesn't change at all. Yeah. throughout the film she's the same from when she comes in to when she ends and he's the one who has the arc which i think is very interesting you could say that she could have a fully developed arc as well but it almost feels like right that she's just this immobile force mm-hmm. Im- immovable force and that's like what eventually causes him to change right he has to move yeah. he has to bend around her mm-hmm. and that's what i guess that links into what i was saying where she gets she gets what she wants and he ends up being exactly what she wants him to be which is a to teach or history or whatever it was he teaches it, at her school at her and school eat lunch and together it, every day <laughs> and come home and grade papers and yeah <laughs> the last thing he thought he wanted yeah but it ended up he bent around it and he it's like he's resigned but he also he's resigned to what he wants mm-hmm. to what he actually did want which is to be this really competent guy 
who he takes care of everything. He takes care of the finances. He won't let her cook. Yeah. <laughs> she can't do anything. He'll make the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> She's so bad. But it but it's really funny because she but she brings the money. She brings the resources. Mm-hmm. And the mansion and the sweetness. Yeah. And I think the one time that we're going to see, okay, and I'm really going to spoil something here. It's that's very important in the plot. Just warning you right now. I guess what it is is she's very passive, and then she takes one action really in the whole film, and that one action is what bends him. It's mm-hmm. I think it, that's the point where he's so sure he's going to kill her, and it's all resolved, and that you can just almost see. It's such a great such a great thing you could almost see like light bends around a, a heavy mass you can almost just see him being bent around her and even though he doesn't know it you see it and what happens is she, on their honeymoon she finds a fern and she's a botanist and her dream is to find a new species that's never been cataloged before so she does just to cut to the chase she does she sends it into the whatever society and they say yes 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 this is a brand new species you get to name it so she names it the esophilus gray hammy and his name is henry graham and he says well that was stupid because you were known for all your work as Lowell. So why didn't you name it? Why did you name it Grahammy, your married name? She says, because I didn't name it after me. I named it after you. And of course, he's he's kind of selfish and he does it in such a great way. He's like, yeah. oh, I'm going to be a footnote in a in a textbook? And she goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like, oh, okay. And then only later does the like real impact of it hit him. Right, right. And, and that, exactly. And, so, and it still goes on for another, what, 40 minutes. And mm-hmm. then the impact hit. And he finally sees what we know he needs to see, mm-hmm. where we know he's going. It's so pleasurable. Yeah. It really is. One thing I think, um, like you mentioned earlier, where he's like, you're not allowed to cook, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You could, and maybe this is where it being written by a woman, like, really helps or something. Yeah. But it could be like, oh, she's so clumsy. Oh, she's so helpless. Like, she can't do anything. And that could feel like... You know, they created this woman character. Like denigrating like, her. Exactly. Yeah. But it's really not the case at all. It really feels very humanistic, like that she is, she's, you know, this mad botany genius. And yeah. she just has, you know, she's just that type of person that has no other skills. Except <laughs> her goodness. Ephemeral. Except yeah. her goodness. Right. And that, I think that's the other thing, too. Doesn't take away from a certain purity mm. of innocence that she has, that no matter what he does, she can see through to the goodness in him. Mm-hmm. And she calls to that. Mm-hmm. Because there's another scene in the lawyer's office where the lawyer knows that he's after her money. But the lawyer himself had had asked her to marry him several times, which is another very subtle way of showing that she does have an internal strength because right. she didn't want to marry him. He, he kept asking her and she kept saying no because he wanted her money. And so now he wants her to prenup, essentially, where Henry doesn't get any money. And she has to co-sign all checks and everything. And he says, people think that he's marrying you for your money. And she goes, oh, we don't want that. Okay, pay all his debts now before I get married and uh, give him his own checking account so that he can write his own checks. He goes, no, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. She goes, well, wouldn't it be very suspicious if I put him on a short leash financially? Wouldn't they then say he was definitely marrying me for my money? Right. (laughs) but, But if he has it all before we get married then. And I mean, not that she gives him all her money, but. She does pay his debts for him. He and he knows after he marries her, he's going to have as much money as he wants. So that was it. Was very very funny how she takes that the, argument and turns it around mm-hmm. 
to to a really loving point of view. Very skillful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because she, she really does love him. It's very funny. Apparently, during the scene in the lawyer's office, I think it was one of the very first scenes they did, uh, she and Walter Matha are sitting on a bench next to each other. And she, like I said, she didn't know what she's doing, but the uh, director's supposed to say action at the beginning of the scene. So she's sitting there and she goes, action. And he goes, I don't need I I I don't need you to say action. I've been in thirty movies. <laughs> wow! I never said action again. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Walter Matthau was a really gruff, kind of difficult guy, huh. apparently, and it's funny because that it kind of comes through in his acting, but in a way because of the levity he puts into it, it's very funny. But apparently, in real life, he was not. not he was not a pussy cat. He he was a kind of a a gruff bear. Huh. Of a guy, and then there are uh, another uh, another character to just make sure we make a nod to is the butler. The butler is hilarious. He is so good. That, well, he's not a butler. He's a gentleman's gentleman, which right. is a different deal, right? And oh my gosh, he's so he's so precise. He's in he's an English actor, and I think he must have had classical training because the precision. The, the timing of his, the way he delivers his lines is, it's just like clockwork. It's so perfect and perfect for the scene. And I love it. And it's he's like the opposite of Matho. Matho has kind of a shambly, weighty, droopy kind of demeanor and delivery. And this guy, he's he's short, but he's taut. He's crisp. He's 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 on, on the mark, yeah. you know? Taking care of business. <laughs> and yet he does have a little bit of depth to him, too, because the... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, he's got the love of being a gentleman's gentleman, and he's like, sir, you're keeping this profession alive, like, on your own. Um, but he also obviously really cares about his boss, and he, like, gently nudges him in, like, you know, directions, trying to lead him to personal growth. And he's horrified to realize that his boss is actually seriously considering killing his wife. Yeah. And he's always like, oh, where, where's Mrs. Graham? Where's Mrs. Graham? <laughs> <laughs> And there are a lot of character actors in this, a lot that you'll see um, as the various servants. And I won't, we won't go into all these details because that would be boring. You definitely need to watch it. It's, it really is just a, a, a crisp, it's a little um, gem, little tender gem of a movie. <laughs> um, even though the camera angles are not that great, it's clunky in terms of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll be so much into the story and the fun and the dialogue, you won't even notice. So we won't go into this depth on any of the other movies, but so let's see. The next one was Heartbreak Kid, and that was like three years later, 1971, and Heartbreak Kid was 74. Oh, 72 next year. Wow. So in 72, and that was a a screenplay written by Neil Simon, who's a famous playwright, if you don't know. At the time, he was a comic playwright, very well known. And it stars Charles Grodin, who actually is another star of comedy. He's a very behaviorally, intrinsically funny guy. This direction was so bad that even Charles Grodin couldn't save it. And he was working. Yeah. That guy was working his ass off to yeah. make it be funny. The funniest one in the film, though, is the woman who plays his wife, which is Jeannie Berlin, who is Elaine May's daughter. But the problem is is that she's kind of funny. But Elaine May, again, she's not good at directing actors any more than she is at the camera work. So she really allows people to just do whatever. And I don't think they were getting feedback she was too strident. Jeannie Berlin, her her performance is just too strident as the uh, sort of the privileged Jewish young New Yorker who's just got married and needy. And it's, just, it's too much. If it, if it had been shaped a little bit more, if Elaine May had done it herself, would have been hilarious. Mm-hmm. But And Charles Grodin running around. And then Sybil Shepard is the woman that he 
wants to leave his bride. He meets her within a week of the marriage or something. Yeah. Or a day after when they go on the honeymoon, he sees Sybil Shepherd, and now he wants her. Sybil Shepherd was a model, in case you don't know that, and very beautiful. But she wasn't really the greatest actor. She's okay. She had an acting career. It was all right. She had a, a TV series for a while, and, and so with with Bruce Willis, by the way. Huh. Uh, yeah, they starred together in that in the in the series. But she's really not that much of an actress, and she certainly wasn't when she first started. No, she's just very pretty. And... Yeah, she's fat and and kind of vacuous. She's just Which like is a... like the character she's supposed to play, but it's almost too much. Yeah, well, it... she was being it instead of acting. It, yeah, you know, <laughs> and so she was a, a, a kind of a energy suck. Yeah, uh, from the film. Which is, yeah, you need to be vacuous, but you, you, you give energy. You don't. Mm-hmm. The only really good person in this is Eddie Albert, who plays her dad. And there's one scene where he lets Charles Grodin have it. And it's quite funny. And Eddie Albert was the star of Green Acres, in case. Yeah, this movie, it was critically well received. Like, yeah. it's, it's rated really high on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, and it was recommended. I have it on my list, my T- TBW list, because I've listened to podcasts and I hear critics saying, oh, this is good. And it's not. It's just don't really don't waste your time. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I really like, I, I like the aesthetic of it a lot. Actually, like, there are a lot of images from the movie that kind mm-hmm. of stick in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, they go to this hotel and it's so very 70s and, like, yeah. the pool and the, the clothing and stuff. But, it's just that, like, it's, like, left, like, a magazine in my mind, you know, right. to flip through the images. But, but it also isn't shot very well. So no. the images make it into the frame, yeah. but it isn't well shot. Like, it, sometimes it feels like she's, like, too close mm. to, to the people, and it ends up being claustrophobic mm-hmm. in a way that is not necessarily intentional. And, yeah, and there, there are a lot of cool, like, shots of the ocean and that yeah. kind of thing. But a real artist like a Mike Nichols would have made those images... More than just images, yeah. yeah, symbolic or metaphorical on some level, or or, or be more beautiful, yeah, because it really wasn't that beautiful. Yeah. I didn't think anyway, um, and yeah, it just, ugh. I, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> shouldn't make those noises, but I I totally disagree with this, and I think uh, I think we should warn people. Yeah, <laughs> so the heartbreak kid. Yeah. You can move on. The ending is kind of mystifying too. It's 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 a movie that's very much about emptiness in a certain way, yeah. and it. But it doesn't make any commentary on it. I think it's trying to make kind of an maybe underneath the cyclical that mm-hmm. this guy he had a woman, and he married her, and then he saw another woman, yeah. and okay, this is the one that's going to make me feel better. This is the one that's going to you know make my life complete. And he, as soon as he gets her and he marries, so all of a sudden he's not talking to her, paying any attention to her. You yeah. figure, well, he's going to do it again because he's chasing fulfillment through the romance, right? Right. It kind of reminds me innocence of Mike Nichols the graduate not in quality the graduate is fantastic masterpiece but at the end of the graduate there's like this period where all of a sudden the romance falls away and they're just sitting there at the end I'm sorry I'm ruining I'm gonna ruin the graduate for you they're just sitting there at the end and all of a sudden the desire is met because they're together and it drops away and the emptiness comes back in (laughs) and yeah exactly and they're just sitting there in the emptiness and it isn't a fairy tale fulfilled ending and it's kind of the same ending but not as well done and not as powerful and the logic really falls apart because there's no emotional pathos behind it yeah so. right exactly yeah exactly okay right, moving on so the next one that's mikey and nick and i mentioned that before that's with john cassavetes and peter falk and it's really pretty much just the two of them i mean a few people come in and out but it's a uh, two gangsters uh, one of which the john cassavetes character he's sure that they're is a hit out on him and his pal Peter Falk comes and keeps trying to convince him that there isn't 
and tries to get him out to come out of the room and okay I'm, I'm spoiling it and the big twist is that he is actually after him and trying to kill him yeah well he's the guy they have sent because he's his buddy to draw him out so that the um the assassin can get him and the only part i liked of this was the assassin because i thought yeah. he was funny he was funny <laughs> he, was, he was deadly serious yeah and the movie was fairly serious in that but he was just kind of i don't know he was obviously a professional but he was also kind of hapless he just yeah. kept missing and he was kind of stolid and kept going to the phone and being like <laughs> where are you go in there he's not there yeah i don't know it was funny he's driving he's just driving <laughs> like, it's like working in a corporate office yeah he's just trying to get trying to get that email through yeah. or whatever it's like oh. logistics just keep <laughs> and well and because the guy's so erratic he keeps yeah. pulling him right and left because he's sure that these guys are after him, and he is right. And, uh, and so there's just a lot of chit-chat and natter between these guys and the, and the talking, and clearly this is yeah. a lot of improvisation, as I mentioned before about her, with the process and the cameras. But it, a lot of times it doesn't make sense, it's not tight enough, and it doesn't take you anywhere. The, part of the thing about improv and process is you try this way and that way, and you reiterate, and, but go do it a little bit different, and, and that's the meat of the process and that's what actors love they love that that's what they do but when you get to the end of the day the director has to say this one's where we're going to go and mm-hmm. we're going to shape it this way and i'm going to time it this way to make it a product so yeah it's not the art it's just the leftovers of the artistic process but that's the part i like the process is only interesting when you're in it it's not inter- that interesting to watch really and she just wanted to minimally shape things if at all and i think this movie just becomes just oh it drags so hard the first scene is like quite interesting yeah um except you can see john cassavetes and this is what i don't like about his acting you can see him making choices (laughs) it's like he'll do something and you can tell he thinks it's a really cool choice yeah and he's really being in the moment but he's so in the moment it's like an ego trip Uh, that's why I don't like his that's acting. That's so funny. I could see that. He's he, the paranoid guy. He's the yeah. paranoid guy. So like, there's one point where he, the guy's at, uh, Peter Falk's at the door, and he gets up, and he presses himself against the wall, and he slides along the wall, and he gets up on the bed, and he walks over the bed, and he, and he looks around the corner, and I'm thinking, and he's got this maniacal, like, uh, suspicious <laughs> look in his eye and all this, and I'm going, oh, my God, he's so getting off on this. Yeah. Whereas Peter Falk is interesting because I never thought much of him. I never knew him other than Columbo, and he always did the same thing every show, and, you know, I know a lot of people love Columbo, but uh, when I was young, it just seemed very repetitious. It was always the same. But in this movie, he's the one yeah. the one thing that I would say is good, even though his speeches are boring. But he's just fresh. He's yeah. just there. He just seems real. He, you, know, you can watch him without any kind of striving or work in watching him. He's just really natural which is what actors strive to be you know he can be in obviously can be interesting when he it's wants good. to be. yeah he was intense i loved it so this kind of like opening a whole opening segment he finally starts to trust him and he's like okay can you go get me some milk and he goes downstairs <laughs> and he's like give me some fucking milk <laughs> and the lunch counter they're like we don't sell milk and he's like you sell coffee and they're like yeah and he's like give me coffee with all room in it and then fill it up with milk <laughs> and like he like gets it leaps over the counter at one point like it's pretty that was pretty dynamic that like, was I fun loved that, that, scene. that was that was that was i agree <laughs> and then the rest of it just numbed me <laughs> yeah i know well the thing is to be honest we actually played it at one and a half speed yeah so we could still hear the hear what they were saying but we sped through that end it was yeah. so dull 
You know what that scene reminds me of? If anyone's ever seen Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson, there's a scene where, I, I, I don't remember the details of it, I, and it's a very, very famous scene, but he goes into, they're in a restaurant, and he wants, a, or he wants rye bread, wheat toast. And he says, do you have a chicken sandwich? And she says, yes. He says, well, hold the mayo, hold the lettuce, hold the chicken <laughs> between your knees. Right. <laughs> and so it, that, that scene in the thing where he's trying to get the milk is... I love that. The struggle with like the the sort of rule based, uh, like corporate rule based, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, or or lunch with counter, or 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 with the the disaffected worker. It's not yeah. my place. I don't give a shit. I'm not paid to right. even. I'm not even paid to think. I'm I'm barely paid enough to even be here. So I don't give a shit if you want milk. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> it's not on the menu. I'm not dealing with it. Yeah, and it was. It, yeah, that was a very good scene. So anyway, that's uh, Mikey and Nikki. Do not recommend it. I think you'd be bored. And then now we come to, I'm rubbing my hands together, <laughs> folks, Ishtar. And that was in 1987? That was Double in... check me on that. Yep, 1987. 1987. So, so two years, the, the release of Mikey and Nikki was delayed, and so it was released in December uh, 76. And what happened was it was, I think it was budgeted at like $1.8 million, mm-hmm. and it came in like more than double. Oh, wow. What it cost, because she's leaving the flipping camera running right. for hours when nobody's even there and doesn't want to wrap up and so on and so forth. She got fired, basically, from, from the studio. She didn't get another offer to do a movie. It's just as well. But then she did work on Reds, which is a film that Warren Beatty did. And Reds is a very good film. It's about four hours long, so you have to be willing to watch that. But I think within the one month when it came out, I went to see it twice. I really loved it. She did some of the writing. It's not a comedy, but she did some of the writing for it. It wasn't credited. And so she really helped Warren Beatty out. She also did Heaven Can Wait, which is a remake of a 1940s movie about a guy who dies, and they send him back into somebody else's body Mm. um, who was going to die so that he could redeem himself. And Warren Beatty starred in that film. So she got to know him, and basically it sounds like she did some solids. And so he wanted to do her you know support her and do a favor for her so he convinced the studio to let her direct Ishtar big mistake (laughs) big mistake first of all Ishtar is often called the worst movie ever made did you think it was the worst movie ever made no not by a long shot it wasn't it wasn't great yeah maybe Cuban Rebel Girls is the worst movie (laughs) go back to Errol Flynn yeah (laughs) we talk about that one that was pretty bad so uh, she gets to direct this actually fairly expensive movie it had a pretty solid budget and it's going to take place in the desert and it's about Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty play a couple of song and bad song and dance men who are trying to make a little career of it they end up traveling to the Middle East Elaine May was I won't say inspired but she wanted to sort of modernize and rekindle the road movies from the 1940s with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby But Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, I'm not even going to explain who they are because I think they're so famous people would know, at least that they're famous people. Uh, They were, uh, they did, they were song and dance duo kind of. And so she she wanted to uh, bring those elements together and she thought it would be really fun. So the film, I think that she, so the film that she primarily relied on out of that seven film series was The Road to Morocco. So The Road to Morocco, two guys, they go to the Middle East, and there are uh, Arab guerrillas, 
uh, fighting. That's G U E R I. Right. Double L A. Thank you. <laughs> fighting uh, rebels, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, fighting in the desert with their guns and riding horses across. There is a whole scene where the two of them ride on a camel. That's straight out of Road to Morocco where they're lost in the desert and they're dying of thirst and they're riding on this camel, same one. And this one, um, Road to Morocco, had these buzzards flying over them, or vultures, I should say. And in Ishtar, she had vultures. She played it up a little bit more than in the other one. And then there was another bit where... There was another bit where she takes it right, right out he's of... He's carrying him on his back. Oh, right. There's the piggyback where he's carrying yeah. him on his back. And that was a big, big thing. And then a lot of things are very different. But um, it's... I don't know. I thought it was interesting. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're studying film rather than just watching for fun. I wouldn't recommend this to say, oh, this is really enjoyable. But I think if, you, if you're if you interested in film and what things mean and how they interconnect, I think it's worth watching. If you watch Road to Morocco and Ishtar in whatever order you want, you don't have to watch one before the other, I think it's very interesting to mm-hmm. see how her mind works, that this is something from her childhood that she remembers watching these films. She remembers it obviously lovingly. There's probably a comedic influence on her. Um, Bob Hope was a huge comic at the time, huge. Um, and she saw these things and she wanted to just like, you know, I remember things from my childhood and I go, oh, I loved that at that time. I look at it now and go, it wasn't very good, but I really liked it. So she was, she was just folding that into her script. Unfortunately, ideas don't always work in reality. And if they're not working, you have to let go of them or you have to change them. And that's not something that she was really willing to do. For example, Bing Crosby was always the supp- supposedly handsome one. Well, go and look him up and see what you think. But I never thought he was good looking. But he's, he is better looking than Bob Hope. So he's the handsome, smooth guy who always gets the girl. And Bob Hope is the goofy guy who gets a secondary girl. But he doesn't get Dorothy L'Amour. And he's like, uh, like kind of fallen down and hapless and a little bit naive. So she thought it would be hilarious to take Warren Beatty, who was, if you're not aware of this, was known as the Lothario. He just had women right and left, and he was handsome. He was like Brad Pitt, I guess, that people, you know, go, oh, Warren Beatty, right? Most handsome guy ever. It'd be hilarious if he plays the Bob Hope role, the guy who is unsure of himself, doesn't think he can get the girl, is naive, is innocent, and that Dustin Hoffman, who is not very good looking, will be the Bing Crosby, the guy who's sure of himself, the guy who's suave, the guy who's, you know, very sophisticated. So doesn't it really doesn't work. Another one of her, like, intellectual ideas. Like, wouldn't that be interesting if we flipped the roles? Yeah, yeah, and it just, it's not. It, it doesn't play that's to their one, strengths, yeah. And that's one of the things that doesn't work. Now, if they had had, maybe in this film, Charles Grodin and Walter Matthau, it could have been funny. Yeah. The other thing that draws this film down, as I tried to think of why you know, uh, is that neither of these actors is comedically funny. Yes, Dustin Hoffman was in Tootsie and Warren Beatty was in like Heaven Can Wait and a few other funny movies. But in both those movies, they are actually serious people. They were not, they weren't comic, really comic roles. Tootsie isn't a comic role. He's a very serious actor and he's really trying to make it by pretending to be a woman. And at the end, he comes out and he's very sincere and sorry about his conduct. It's the situation that's funny and him being serious in that situation. Here, they're supposed to be kind of funny, goofy, 
Yeah, guys. supposed to generate the comedy for sure. Yeah, they have yeah. to be behaviorally Through funny. their ridiculousness. And right. How bad their music is, and yet they don't realize it. And, yeah. 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 And they're they're all sincere about these crazy songs. And also, the, you know, like being followed and falling down and being with the woman, yet being hapless. The, the way those parts are set up, it doesn't work for these two actors who are actually fundamentally pretty serious, uh, solid actors. They're not funny guys. They're not behaviorally funny. Whereas like a Walter Matthau and, or... or or a Charles Grodin, or Jack Lemmon, or a, you know, people mm-hmm. like that would have helped the movie be a better film. And again, the woman, uh, Isabel Johnny, plays the one. She's so beautiful. This is when she's very young, and she was the, the gorgeous French revolutionary. Her part is really, isn't developed. Yeah. It's not very interesting. The most interesting part about it is that she's a rebel, and so she shows up, and she, she has a gun, and she's, so she's, like, kind of tough right. in certain ways. Um, but then, of course, she's really also helpless and a damsel uh, yeah. in other moments. And so, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of disconnected, and she's just there to serve the plot and serve the back and forth. And that's something that comes up here. So now we're going to get to, I think, what is the worst part of why this movie failed. Mm-hmm. And that is Elaine May does not know, have an eye for the camera. Mm-hmm. She, she does not understand film and how film looks and how it needs to be shot to look the right way. She looked at it where she was here and now in this space and, oh, it's funny if it's like that juxtaposition. But when you film it, it doesn't work that way. And that was a lot of the problem was that translation. And as time went on, this film, because they they actually went to the Middle East and, Mm. and shot there, and it was... A nightmare. She she didn't know how to run a company. Um, she was uh, she had shot things over and over and over and took too long. And they were going way over budget, millions and millions and millions of dollars over budget. Plus, there was a lot of fighting. And unfortunately, she and Warren Beatty ended up falling out over this because he was like, "I got to take over." Because he is a he's, he is a director. He's not the greatest director ever, but he's very competent director. She says, I wanted to go for the comic effect. And he's going, you need to do it this way. And she just refused to let him do it. And so he ended up having to take over some of the directing to just get the film done and to make it somewhat competent. And, of course, that made her really mad. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that anger, it's just got to come out of the fact that she either can't admit that she can't do something or she just, it's that ego thing where you don't want to say, I can't do it mm-hmm. because you feel bad that you can't do it or I mean, that must be a lot of pressure, for uh, sure, to be directing a movie, right. millions of dollars, yeah. And, I mean, what, is, what were they thinking? This is only her fourth movie, and the other yeah. ones weren't that good. Yeah. You know, what, is, is, and it's not like she went to film school to study film directing in between so that she hadn't gotten any more skills. Right. And it was just, I guess it was just a, a nightmare. And the, they were fighting, and she wouldn't talk to him, and they weren't talking to each other. And I actually feel kind of bad for Warren Beatty yeah. in that he... Want, he just wanted to do something nice for his friend. Yeah, he promoted her and he was, you know, like put his weight behind her and everything totally did. too. And was like... He pushed it through. Yeah. And then it was a huge flop. And um, and part of the, again, part of the problem is that the two leads, part of it, I think, is that they were big stars, both of them, big, big, big stars. And here they are pretending to be untalented when they're, they're actually very talented people. Pretend, mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, oh, we're having fun. Look at how... I'm this great actor, and I'm pretending like I'm bad. Yeah. And you can almost see that ego. I don't know, like when they would sing songs and pretend to be bad, you know, be bad at their act and things like that. It's sort of like a gleeful, like, ooh, look at me. You know, again, that takes away from the humor of it. Um, So I think that was another 
Mm. Big drawback of this one. Is there anything um, particularly that you remember? Part, oh. of, part of what was most interesting to me was uh, the sort of tries to be political or like yeah. there's a political element to it, but it doesn't work. And if it had worked, it would have been a lot more interesting. But it does take kind of a cynical look at like U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. and the CIA and everything. Um, but, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, but it doesn't really work. It's not yeah. sharp. Yeah. I know what I was going to say. Here's an, here's an, um, another example of why this movie went so over budget. Okay, so in the script, I don't know if you remember it, but they they bought a blind camel. Yeah. And so they the blind camel is a blue-eyed camel. Right. And they're like, oh, okay, we have this blue-eyed camel. Well, I'll tell you, camels do not wear contact lenses. Right. Right? To color their eyes. So they, they were looking for a blue-eyed camel, and I guess they, they couldn't in post color the eyes blue. I don't know. But the guy who is in charge of the animals, he goes to, and they're in the Middle East, he goes to the market to try to find a camel. And he saw this blue-eyed camel, and the, the person who was selling it wanted too much money. And he says, oh, well, I'll just go to another market or come back another time, and I'll get one cheaper. Well, he didn't know that blue-eyed camels are extremely rare. <laughs> and so they had to put a whole bunch of resources into trying to find another blue-eyed camel after he turned right. it down. Didn't you say it got... It got eaten or something. Yeah, that's by right. By the time he came back, that's right. They'd eaten the camel. <laughs> exactly, and so it was just—it was that kind, of, yeah. just that kind of stuff. Over there were sandstorms. Didn't Elaine have trouble with the environment too, like the sun and everything? Oh yeah, she she was dying. Yeah, she was a you know very very pale and it, it couldn't handle the heat, and so I, I guess she was just like wrapped up and had big hat on and glasses and. I wouldn't be surprised if that exacerbated everything. Oh, I can imagine. It'd be very hard to, to be patient and to make decisions in that kind yeah. of situation. So, I mean, they had all kinds of things like that going on. And, um, God, the image of Dustin Hoffman wearing that bandana around his head. Yeah. Just, oh, I hate that. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, I don't dislike Dustin Hoffman per se, but he can really go the wrong way. And so I think that that kind of wraps up her, we'll call, quote-unquote, artistic directing. And then there was the Mike Nichols American Masters interview, which we watched, and it was interesting. And he gave a lot of information, although he really soft-pedaled around his relationship with May. There's another documentary, we'll put the uh, link in the show notes, uh, which is, again, just a talking head interview with him, but somebody else filmed it and he he talks a little bit more about their relationship although he's very gentle he's very they're very circumspect in talking about their relationship Uh, but it's it's better lit it's more in focus (laughs) it's a lot better it's livelier somehow in energy (laughs) yeah you just you feel you know you, you just basically you don't notice the directing whereas the other one you do so unfortunately we had to talk about one area of this brilliant woman that was not where she wasn't at her strongest, so we chose that. But we're going to be coming back with more on women, right? Um, we're going to kind of take take a look at some of the uh, major... Uh, femme fatales. Femme fatales. Maybe just a, Well, actually, I think I want to kind of do a little bit of a sort of a, a quote-unquote family tree of... The uh, buxom blonde, of course, uh, and the influences. So we would, you know, have, yeah, I'm kind of thinking, and this could change, so TBA, but um, going from like Alana Turner influencing like a Marilyn Monroe, and of course Marilyn was kind of the peak of that, and then we had Jane Mansfield, and we recently discovered a a ba-ba-ba-boom woman with a 41-inch chest and blonde hair and the sweetest face named Sabrina from England, who is known as uh, 
uh, British Jane Mansfield. That should be pretty exciting. That'll be an education for me, too, because I've seen some Maryland movies, but in film, especially the history of it is so man dominated Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to look at these histories through that lens where it's like they're these women acting with their own agency as much as they can within like this script and this stereotype and this yeah so they're playing the dumb blonde but really they're quite intelligent and they've had to scrap very hard and most of them slept their way to the top but they ended up trying to create their own persona and their own career even though they were so hemmed in by the uh, patriarchy shall we say yeah the filmic patriarchy so that'll be fun tldr watch new leaf Mm -hmm. you don't have to follow may elaine may for her directing career but new leaf is a fantastic movie and it will uh, provide a little spark in your heart on a rainy day and you can just do a little jig after you watch it yeah (laughs) i guess that's it bye bye thanks for listening we love it and we hope you uh continue to watch yeah shouts out to scarecrow video where you can rent all of the movies we talk about of course if you want to get in touch with us shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening